Dr. Kira Losty is a lecturer in applied sport and exercise psychology in the Waterford Institute of Technology. Kira regularly works with the Irish Institute of Sport in the area of sports psychology support with their elite athletes, and we're delighted she could join us today. Kira goes into detail on how psychology can help coaches and athletes' decision making, how all coaches should be looking to enhance the environment so athletes feel valued, and that no one size fits all in defining success. Another really enjoyable show. As always, you can subscribe to the Coaching Bubble podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud and you can keep up to date with all things Coaching Bubble on social media at Bubble Coaching. Enjoy. Kira, thanks a million for joining us. It's fantastic to have you here. Um, so we'll jump straight in. Um, how is sports psychology useful for coaches? Yeah, that's a really, really great question. Listen, thanks a million, Stephen, uh, for the invite. I'm, I'm delighted to be here and talking with you today. Um, when we think about sports psychology, we generally think about athletes and performers, but we miss kind of the crucial person who's in the middle of the athlete performance as well, who is the actual coach. Um, and they can be a key gatekeeper for actually linking an athlete to support services, whether it's psychology, nutrition, um, strength and conditioning, whatever it is, but also they're performers in their own right and that they strive to be elite just like the same way as they would with their athletes. They also have to perform under pressure, make decisions under pressure in very uncertain environments. Um, They also regularly deal with adversity, with disappointment, and are subject to high critic, critical levels as well, high expectations um, from the media maybe, or even their own employers, their national governing bodies. So they are performers in their own right that often need to learn how to manage their own emotions in particular pressure situations. Okay. About 20 different things I want to jump into here now. <laughs> but, uh, so, okay, so... I'm a coach and uh, I'm trying to get the best performance I possibly can out of my athletes, whether that be an individual or as a team. So what's, what's, how can sports psychology help me as the coach? So I'm not just sending my athletes to a sports psychologist, or maybe I am as well, but how does it help me as a coach? Uh, you mentioned there that coaches are striving to be better. Stro- coaches are striving to be elite in their own performance. So how does the psychology help the coach? <sighs> Well, the, psycholo- the psychology can actually help the coach, particularly about their own decision-making skills. So what, I suppose, anecdotally, if I meet somebody, so when I meet them to see if I kind of connect with a particular coach or manager in a GAA setting, um, the person I meet and have a cup of tea, post pre-COVID, cup of tea and a scone with, um, and have a conversation about maybe their own philosophy, their own values, and does that actually sit and fit with my philosophy as an actual practitioner as well? They can be a very different person when they're in a pressure situation or on the side of an actual pitch as well. So, so it can be, and that would be one of the crucial key questions I would always ask a coach or a manager about how open are they to feedback? Because everybody that's in the changing room or everybody that has some kind of contact with the individual athlete or with the team is going to influence performance in some way. So again, psychology isn't, sports psychology just isn't about changing the behavior or the performance of the actual athletes. About It's about enhancing the environment that the actual athletes are in so that we can move them to a place where they're, you know, thriving personally and then from a performance perspective. 
Does okay. that kind of make sense to you? Yeah, no, absolutely. It does. I'm really interested the way you said there that, and I know we can't do the cup of tea anymore, but you, you meet and talk with the coach to see if the values align. So I totally get that. And if the values do align that you can work together, but what happens if they don't align? Uh, or, or is that a is that your initial block as in if they don't align okay we can't work together or or do you try and frame your concepts to fit the coach's values yeah that's a really that's really interesting insightful i'm probably at a position i'm probably at a very privileged privileged position and point in my career now where if something doesn't really fit with my philosophy or align with my values they're the hard decisions to actually have to make as a practitioner because it could be a really maybe high profile job and a team that you've been striving or on the outside looking in, God, God, I'd love to work in that environment or in that particular organization. And then the opportunity might arise, but it just doesn't align with your philosophies or your own values or principles. Um, and they're the kind of difficult reflections and questions that you have to ask yourself. So for me, if something doesn't align with where I would see how I could actually develop and deliver my my practitioner skills, I wouldn't actually work in that organization or with that actual uh, coach or, or manager. And that has happened to me before. I have turned down jobs that have been particularly high profile jobs, but it just doesn't. I know that it's not a fit for me and the way I would like to actually deliver my particular psychological skills um to the to the team and to the athletes yeah no it's interesting um because yeah i i and i like the way you say you're in a privileged privileged position because you get to choose yeah. and i suppose success the, the success in, in your career so as far as it enabled you to be in that situation um you also mentioned that you think that the psychology the sports psychology support for a coach can help enhance their coaching in terms of making decisions so what do you mean by that? Are you telling me that you do some work with me and that means on the sideline I'm going to be pulling out tactical masterclasses uh, out of my pocket in a, in a crunch situation in a game time? Or is this more of a, uh, I suppose, how I'm able to make decisions under pressure and, and not get caught up in the the game itself or the, the emotions that are attached to that game? Yeah, like not getting caught up in the, in the actual emotions of the game, being able to kind of look at things from a different from an actual diff- different lens as well, but also allowing a space um, where the coach can actually reflect on their own inter and intrapersonal skills as well. So I'm kind of a sounding board for them where they can actually develop, well, you know, what what could I have done differently or what could I have done better? So it's a safe space for the actual coach to actually use the sports psychologist as well to enhance their own performance without any fear of judgment or kickback. It's just that kind of reflection, reflection space where they can actually look at maybe improving um, their own decision making or proving their own uh, management of their actual uh, emotion. It may feel like it's like a mini coaching session, but it's a psychological type coach coaching uh, session, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, totally. Uh, reflection. We love reflection on this show. Uh, um, inter and intrapersonal skills. Break them down for me, please. Um, as something <laughs> that I would uh, definitely strive to be better at myself. Yeah. So how again? How does an like everybody wants to feel valued and everybody wants to feel heard. And if you have a panel of 30 or 40 players, it's incredibly difficult to make sure everybody on that panel feels heard and feels valued 
all of the time. So using a sports psych, it can kind of be nearly a shortcut or somebody that can help actually help you and give you insights into how maybe certain individuals are motivated Uh, maybe particular life situations, again, not breaking confidentiality, you know, information that maybe an athlete has allowed you to share um, with the actual coach, you know, life situations that people could be going through, particularly with COVID, coping skills, all of those types of things. So now we're looking at maybe developing the coach's interpersonal skills where they begin to connect with the individual because we're looking at your coaching, the human first, the person first and the performance second so if you have that connection with those with the individual and you're focused on the process you're lining up the cards that maybe the actual performance will actually come but again there's no guarantees in 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 sport at all and then the intrapersonal skills and that the coach is actually giving themselves time and space to actually reflect on certain things how they actually manage the the situation what would they do differently, but also allowing a, a deliberate space for this to actually happen and not letting it ha- happen anecdotally or at an ad hoc level or it happens every now and again, that we actually build this type into the actual, I suppose, how our week works out or if we're in a training camp or a training weekend, we build all of this within to the actual, I suppose, the system really. Um, and I can help a coach or a management team do that and kind of break down their week, their inter, their intrapersonal skills. And we build in that, I suppose we call it, when we call, we call it from a performance, you call it deliberate practice, I suppose, but now it's integrating deliberate practice within from a psychological skills uh, perspective. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, and it makes perfect sense. And you broke it down very, very simply there. Uh, and, and I suspect it's not quite that simple. Um, you talked about the process that you would uh, start off with a team or, or with a manager or, or a coach, whatever that may be. So um, my experience in my my limited uh, uh, playing career would have been that, uh, oh, we're getting to a championship final and someone knows someone. And next thing we're sitting in a room with a sports psychologist two weeks before a final um, and not a whole uh, not a whole pile of benefit, maybe. Um, I, I suspect the continuous process and the, the being emerged in, in a, in a team environment is, is what's the most beneficial. Um, could you maybe touch on that? Yeah. And that really, I suppose, devalues what sports psychology is and actually how it, it is, is, is actually delivered. And again, if anybody is thinking about bringing, you know, we've got to the County final, let's do something extra or do something different. And my key quick question is when I get those 1-800 calls is, uh, you know, what you're doing is working. Like, why, why would you change it? What you've done is working to get to the final. Never, never change it. Um, but yeah, it completely devalues the process. Um, but again, that's kind of looking at maybe the whole accreditation about people who are actually trained specifically in this area and the best practices that people are actually embedded into the, into the actual program or, or the pathway or with the actual team. It takes a long time to develop. It's a big piece of work. It isn't a short term piece of work. It's developing those, you know, connections, what we call therapeutic alliance or relationships with the people that you actually actually work with. And it's investing in people and time. So it takes time to actually develop and understand maybe what an athlete or a coach's triggers are for stress or for anxiety. You know, so it takes time to and a kind of safe space where people may actually disclose that information to you. And then once you know those things, 
you can actually, when you're embedded in with the team, you can develop specific bespoke coping strategies and plans for any adverse situations that they actually that they actually may face. But also you're also thinking of from a very practical, positive perspective that we're working through all of the what if scenarios, things that might actually happen as well. So it's not negative thinking. It's actually proactive thinking to work through, through those particular scenarios as well. I like that. Uh, the way you frame that, it's not negative. The what ifs, the what if we have a man off or, or what if we, we go a goal down? You, it's not that's not a negative thought that's planning for every scenario uh, uh, like it's, that. it's practical it's practical thinking that's the way i'd always frame it practical positive thinking it's not you can't always maintain particularly in sport it doesn't feel right to say positive thinking all the time but i'm like no but we can certainly be more practical you know yeah oh i like it it's, mm-hmm. i haven't heard it framed that way before that's why uh, I, I mentioned it. it's really uh yeah practical is the exact the word i'm looking for um, you talked about stress and anxiety and, and, and adversity and, and coping mechanisms for that. So um, I know we spoke briefly beforehand and we talked about maybe some that are short term and some that are longer term. Could we maybe go with the short term ones first and maybe some examples of those and how coaches and or players could, could cope with them or a couple, a couple of strategies practical, practically wise? And then we we'll touch on the long term after. Yeah, so kind of just maybe some short term things that you might actually work work with somebody is actually maybe recognizing kind of triggers of uh, things that actually make you anxious, triggers of actual stress. And, and particularly in COVID times, we have this kind of chronic level of stress ongoing in the background all the time. So things, even if you're not an anxious person, you may actually be feeling more anxious at this time and you don't even know why you're, why you're, you're feeling feeling that way. So Again, for coaches, for themselves, normalizing that feeling at the moment is really important. And then maybe recognizing that with their players as well. Players will be anxious about transitioning back to play. Players will also be anxious because things have changed beyond recognition at the moment. And when I suppose I started doing it, or talking about a lot of these things, we, we, all, we heard the new normal. And that's the way things were described. Like there's nothing normal about what we're going through at the moment and the way things are actually organized from a sporting perspective. So recognizing and normalizing feelings of anxiety at the moment are incredibly important. Um, Also other things in that we're in a space as well where mental health is also up for discussion a lot more. And because it's kind of been brought again to the forefront for, for COVID um, and that actually recognizing that we don't have to actually solve these problems maybe for the players that we actually are working with, but we can certainly be the gatekeeper and direct them to some supports. Like it could be above what we say sometimes, you know, it's, you have to stay in your lane, but you could be a key person that can maybe recognize something or a sign in somebody and you can actually be the person who will support them to, to make that make that move. Um and again, just from really a goal setting perspective, it really is about much more micro things because everything is disrupted at the moment. So I wouldn't be kind of focusing on longer term plans. We're calling it in the Olympic program about we, we describe it as running the mile we're in at the moment, really focusing on uh, that micro, that weekly things that we can actually do because things are changing at such a rapid pace at this time. So what's the point of adding this stressor? the pressure, sorry, or the stress to ourselves by trying to set medium to long-term goals and then heighten the anxiety that they're going to get disrupted. So at the moment, we have a bit of a, a, a pathway to, 
the way the GEA are planning to to move to move out of COVID. So really breaking that down, maybe in a week to week basis over the coming weeks about what we can do, what we have control over, and what we can manage as we transition to play and to actually train train as well. The other thing that I would love to suggest to coaches would be is that we we don't have a lot of kind of reasons to connect maybe at the moment, or we don't have things maybe to discuss or news to share or all of those anecdotal things that you have when you're, when, when you're on the pitch as well. And I've been saying this to family and friends and to players as well. You don't have to have news to connect. So maybe if you feel like you're doing the zoom calls and all that stuff at the moment, and you're not really sure what's the meaning or why am I doing this? Or I'm not really sure of the purpose of things because it's very difficult to make purpose when there's no competition or no measurement of of certain things, but do again just to reassure to reassure coaches, it is important. You don't have to have news to connect, and to keep those connections at this particular time will serve you well when you actually are back and you are training and you are playing. Yeah, uh, yeah, a hundred percent. I can't uh, can't tell you the amount of times I've met people at the moment, and it's like any news, any crack, and it's like no, same <laughs> old. Um, but yeah. I've, what you say there about that connection um, being useful. So like how important is that, that connection? So uh, I'm coming from a team-based environment for most, most of my life, but so uh, I, how important is that connection between a team in terms of not just the, the on the pitch stuff, but that sort of bond off it? Yeah, it's really important. And I actually think the medium of kind of using IT and Zoom and all that kind of stuff is a great way. It's not the best way, but it's not a bad substitute to to maintain that connection. It's even more important. There are gender differences in relation to this as well. So it's even more important for female teams. They Females do prioritize that camaraderie and that social cohesion more so than females as well. So it can be dependent on whether you're coaching males or, or females. Males, it, that's not to say it's not important to males either. It's just valued higher for, for females. So again, in maintaining that connection is, is, is very, very important. Um, and also as well, I often see this, nobody else really knows what it feels like, but your teammates get it. You know, it's, that, it's, it's surrounding yourself by people who understand what it's like you know, being in your spare bedroom, swinging your kettlebell on your own or running around your local park doing the same 5K. Like no one else really gets it unless you're in that kind of bubble, which is whether it's your coach or, or your teammate. So that shared camaraderie and that shared experience is, in, is important to, man, to maintain things because it will be all the sweeter when we get back and we're actually on the pitch. Yeah, so so your advice to, to any coaches listening is, even if people are sick of Zoom calls, figure something out, make some sort of novelty around it if you have to, but yeah. keep that connection going and, and keep something going. Yeah, totally. And there will be over the next few weeks that we'll be, you know, move to small groups or you'll be able to meet a friend or exercise outside. So you can even start to plan and talk talk about both, the, both those things. So, yeah, I know you people are very aware of the Zoom fatigue and all those things, but it is it is incredibly important. But, yeah, be creative if you want, and particularly with the fem- for female teams, because that will enhance that social cohesion. Excellent. No, I think that's a really good tip and because people will be questioning whether they should be keeping them going mm-hmm. or not. But as you say, light at the end of the tunnel now and, and, and let's get over the line. Um, mm-hmm. Would there be more long-term um, 
long term sort of strategies for for coping with adversity and stuff like that in terms of if there's challenges that are more long term so for example if the coach maybe is involved with a team and there's a lot of pressure to to succeed or to win a championship or to perform at a very very high level is that a different type of stress and adversity and then i suppose my next follow up to that would be is there a different type of co- coping mechanism there uh for that for that type of coach yeah in that like to the pressure to perform is is incredibly intense um and again about it's i suppose maintaining expectations around that piece is very important from a from a coach and not i suppose um over promising and under delivering when it comes to your actual athletes is is very important as well but you have to kind of maintain like everybody wants to win like that's like that's why we play sport like you know we, we don't often maybe we don't mention it sometimes in psychology we look at why we want or what are the kind of conditions that would bring around about winning or the behaviors that will actually enhance our opportunity to, to to actually actually win but we have to kind of manage from a coaching perspective manage the expectations about well are we contenders are we actually champions are we in the dynasty are we just absolute upstarts and win every now and again so success and how you define success has to be contextual and individualized and bespoke for that particular particular team it's highly unlikely you're going to go from the upstarts that win every now and again and maybe have one big win to winners of the championship now that's not to say that it might happen but it's unlikely. So breaking things down and looking at the bigger the bigger picture and seeing things as bigger pieces of work sometimes, that these things do not happen overnight, that it is a longer term process to get that to get that winning and get the behaviors that will actually enhance um, the actual actual performances. So managing expectations of players and for yourself as a coach is is incredibly important. Yeah, no, I really like that, how you define success thing. And I think that can apply to all coaches. And we've, t- we've talked before on the show about people defining success, not defining success as winning an under-11 league or under-12 league, that, that you have to be thinking bigger picture, longer term, et cetera. Um, so so it, uh, it, it ties in nicely. Um, Kira, I want to touch on um, your course. Uh, you lead up the Masters in Applied Sport and Exercise uh, Psychology in WIT. So... Um, I don't want you to go into massive detail or or, or talk about modules or whatever, but what's your end goal for, for, for your graduates there? What's, what do you want them to come out of that wish and, and how does that then reflect on them in, in the workplace, if that makes sense? Or what, where, when they go into sports psychology, what's, what would you love them to have? Like maybe two or three key things. Yeah, it's a really interesting program and in that we have people from sports science or you have people from PE and then you have people from psychology that haven't maybe sports backgrounds at all and so we have a real mix of student actually on the program I suppose our unique unique USP really is that it's applied sport and exercise psychology so we have within myself and Jerry Fitzpatrick with the other course leader people who are practitioners in the actual area as well so we're bringing the lived experience and our own examples I suppose of real life and how that actually works in a sports setting into the into the actual um classroom we also have i suppose opportunities to bring in speakers around so we might have a jockey in or i could have someone from a gaa or a manager to actually bring in their own shared lived experiences around um particular areas but um the out the kind of the, the i suppose the, the the goal or the type of 
graduate that we're looking to actually develop is somebody that has obviously grounded in evidence and grounded um, strong uh, evidence-based practice, but also setting them on the on the road to their own accreditation pathway, that they've filled all the, those knowledge areas and that they are confident and comfortable in delivering. And again, working in that particular space that they can actually develop their own practitioner skills to move on to actually get gaining their own um, professional accreditation in sports psychology. Yeah, and what you something you said there. How important do you think that is that that the the grounding in in practical experience, as in, like, we all know that sometimes the the, the research sits over here and the practical reality sits over here, and there's there's a big gap in the middle. So how do how do you how important do you think do you feel that is in terms of the the research to practical setting? Yeah, I think it's really important. It certainly enhances my teaching in that I can actually explain things or bring a theory to life and give a real life example of actually when I was in the in dressing room and this is group thinker, this is the social psychological theory that actually happened. And here is the example of how this actual this theory played out in, in, in real life. But I also think there's a really key, a key interaction that um, any of the research. So I'm involved in a lot of the, the, the jockey mental health health research at the moment. And we have a, a research group that's um collaboration with other uh, universities in, in Ireland as well. Um, but that actually the practice informs the research, but the research also informs the practice. And this research was born out of my applied work and actually looking for the evidence in a particular area. And there was none. So we decided we we do some and look for funding in, in a particular area. So research informs practice, but practice also informs research. It really for us is a, is is a two. And I suppose for myself as my own, as a researcher and a, pra- a practitioner, um, I really am interested in research that will actually have a real life impact that will impact the lives of the athletes that we work with. That will inform strategies that may. And inform a framework for a national governing body about their own mental health first aid or their mental health uh, framework or performance framework or coach education. And um, so for us, it really is a is a is a two way thing in that what we do in in real life informs what we do in the classroom, but that also works back. And we've had some great transitions then from our own graduates from the programs moving on to staying with us and moving on to PhD programs. Um, within our within our research community in WIT. No, it's brilliant because I, I, like I'm a firm believer myself like if what's the point in doing the research if you can't actually have a practical mm-hmm. output on it but the the way you summed it up there is in going both ways is is really good. Um you talked about um you're doing some work with um with, in horse racing and with jockeys. Um I'm fascinated by this. I wasn't aware that you were uh, so involved in this as I was saying to you beforehand. Um like it's such a mentally tough sport. It has to be like they they go so fast they get thrown off the horses they're back up to go on another race two minutes later so like talk to me about this like I'm fascinated (laughs) because I just can't get around my head about being thrown off a horse at 30 or 40 miles an hour dust yourself off and get back on a horse and go out and be expected to win the next race you know yeah and it really is at 30 or 40 miles an hour I'd say some of the flats probably get up to even faster times the the flat horses and So I'm the sports psychology service provider on the Jockey Pathway and the Jockey Pathway delivers all range of sports science supports to all licensed professional jockeys in Ireland. So they have psychology, they have nutrition, they have strength and conditioning, and we also have lifestyle career support for them. And that's free to all licensed professional jockeys. So it's kind of based on, I suppose, the Sports Institute Institute model. So what we're trying to do from a sports psychology perspective is help the jockey 
and um, cope with the re- the pressures of actual racing, the lifestyle that comes with that as well, the insecurities around that. Um, they have no coaches. They are like sole traders, basically. Um, the trainers train horses. They don't train humans. Um, and they maybe are working in multiple yards. Um, you know, someone work in one yard, someone move around to different yards every day. The miles they clock up on the cars is unbelievable as well. Also, then you have the weight component. So make the, the giving them support around making making weight. So that's myself, maybe working with the nutritionist, working with the strength and condition. So wrapping around those sports sciences supports around them. And again, there's obviously a really complex interplay between making weight and psychological health, mood, dehydration. Often jockeys are competing probably at physiologically they're like worst, if that makes sense, and that they've cut weight to actually get that ride on that particular particular day as well. Just a really interesting group um, and really interesting. They wouldn't even consider themselves athletes. So the culture even of horse racing is is incredibly interesting as well. Um, And there's some practices that are completely embedded into the culture that it will be wholly inappropriate in another in another sport as well. Um, currently, I'm, I have two PhD, full-time PhD students in WIT. So we're looking one, we're, one Lewis King is just finishing up in the mental health of jockeys. And I have a new uh, student, Laura Langton, is starting and she's looking at jockeys transitions and retirement. So we're looking at that piece now at the, at the moment. So that's a, a new new study, but a really interesting group of individuals to work with. Fantastic pathway uh, support. But again, getting the jockeys to buy into and the sports sciences can be very difficult at times. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned a lot of things there that I had no <laughs> idea was was in existence. Um, like, like even the simple thing of like the miles they clock up driving around never would have occurred to me. And and all that alone time or sitting in a car or tra- even just the traveling and the potential for getting good food, etc. It, it's crazy. So like. These, go- these people are obviously very driven a- anyway to, to get into the sport and, and to get at, at any way of a high level. So how how d- can you give any practical example of how, let's say, you would support um, a jockey that may be an up-and-coming jockey and is trying to get to the next level? And all those things that you just mentioned there are, are uh, considerations that you have to, to, to bring in. But how can you actually practically help them to just go maybe one step at a time to 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 get up that next step of the ladder yeah it's 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 a little bit different to other sports because um there are a lot more uncontrollables uh, and in 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 other if you're looking at team sports generally if you play well at the weekend you, you you're putting yourself in contention to be playing for the team for the follow the following match you're training well you're going to maybe be playing that weekend it doesn't necessarily work like that in horse racing so you might go out and win on a horse but then a trainer and an owner maybe decides to freshen it up and put somebody else on the horse the next day even though you might have won or even though you've actually performed well you can also perform winning and losing are poor evaluations of performance anyway and they're even more extreme probably in horse racing where you could have done absolutely everything right and the horse finishes fifth or sixth and that's just the way it is because that's where the horse is maybe at at that particular moment from a training perspective yet the only thing that's recorded um on the score sheet is your wins 
like there's no second or third, there's no silver or bronze in horse racing, you know, as such. Um, so really a lot of the supports around for jockeys will be managing their emotions and managing, I suppose, how they react to the lifestyle, the grind, the stress of the grind is incredibly important. We see the top 1% on the TV, you know, your Rachel Blackmores, Ruby, all of those people that have are, are, have been at the top of the game. The rest, the other 98 probably are struggling to, you know, find work, uh, you know, get, get a ride at the weekend, uh, you know, maintain a, maintain a stable income. And that's probably the piece of the jockeys who I would actually work uh, uh, with the most. Um, also, probably one of the key things is injury. It's probably different again to other sports in that you can actually, you can actually die. You can actually, you know, have a total career, go out to ride a horse and have a career ending injury on that particular, on, on that particular day. Um, so fear of re-injury and returning to ride is another big piece that I would support the actual jockeys with, particularly if they've had some kind of traumatic, um, type, type injury. So that transition piece as well. Another thing that's probably unique to jockeys is that they don't have really dual career development. And that's something I love. Maybe we give out maybe in GAA, but it actually dual career development it allows another sense of self to develop. It allows when you look at the literature and the research, um, if you have outside interests, you're less likely to burn out and actually long, your career will last longer. When you're looking at athletic identity, when you're talking about, when you, when you listen to the jockeys, their, their narrative, their stories, like most of them have grown up around horses. They don't know any different. There was horses out their background. They've been sitting on horses since, since they've been three or four. So that identity, we talk about early specialization. We're talking about others more. This is serious early specialization. It's been like, you know, it's been embedded with them from such a young, a young age. And dual career development is, is often actually seen as a weakness. If you're doing something else or a course online, then obviously you're not very focused. On, on being a jockey or your bottle might be whatever this bottle is there's lots of talks about bottle that's the first time I heard it until I went to the racing world and um, you know that's it, it might take away from your focus and your in your concentration where in fact the opposite is completely true you're more likely to like I said have a longer career and less likely to to, to burn out so we're trying to kind of introduce that idea of you know moving away from that uni yeah uni uh, one identity and moving that you can have multiple identities and actually still be a top performer with, within your sport. So I see that maybe in team sports actually have an advantage over others and that yeah, it allows people to kind of be different things to different people at different times. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I, I should have started with this <laughs> earlier because we could talk for hours on it. Um, <laughs> the, um, I have one more question on it. So uh, I suppose it's more for you as a practitioner. So you talk about the jockeys um, and they probably all have similar, let's say, backgrounds of being around horses or upbringings around horse racing, etc. And they know no difference. Um, does that allow you a certain. Um, they're all individuals at the same time. So what I'm, I suppose what I'm wondering is, can, do, can you have the same approach with them all? Or is it a case of you have a rough framework that you want to apply, but then you got to get to know the individual and try and shoehorn them in as best as possible? I'm just trying to think from a logistical sense, there must be so many jockeys, only a certain amount of you and your team and how that actually looks practically. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, it, it really, again, it is 
bespoke. You do have certain like intake questions that you use that are evidence based and you look at the research articles and you, you have, have an idea around that and how to develop that. And you develop within your own soft skills, your own like practitioner, like coaching soft skills as well. Um, about how you can connect with people very, very quickly. And I don't know when I get a call from a jockey um, we also refer to each other quite a lot as well. Um, and I'd have a close uh, relationship with the chief medical officer and they would refer somebody uh, to me and I could refer them back to them as well. But you don't know, you've no idea, you don't know this person. It's like cold calling. They just come in and it's just straight away you have to, you have to actually make that connection. No, it's completely individual, individually based. The same way as it would be on a sports team where some people, they might get homework. It could be writing in a diary other people, it might be just leave me a voice message or I leave them a voice message on, on WhatsApp. Different people learn and connect with messages, trigger words, mental skills training, all in, in, in different ways. And that's why I suppose the yellow pack version of one size fits all of sports psychology within a team doesn't work for certain things. It worked for maybe, you know, philosophy, a culture or values, that type of thing. But from an actual performance perspective, it's 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 like... It's, I suppose it's like teaching in that you have 30 different personalities in your in your class and you have to find a way to actually motivate and connect with with each individual. But it has to be, I suppose, for them to actually engage with the service. It has to be in a way that it's easy for them as well, um, that it isn't too time consuming if you're asking for feedback or, you know, um, capture some of their thoughts, whatever it is. You know, for some athletes, they like to reflect and put it into an actual training diary. And then for others, particularly for someone like for jockeys who would be very time poor and often maybe unorganized because they're often on the road an awful lot. It's way easier to send a voice note about something and kind of debrief in that way or express express themselves in that way. So, again, you have to it's my job to figure out what's the best way that that, that, that will actually work for that particular individual so there isn't one there isn't ever one way to do anything yeah so one size doesn't fit all same as anything same as coaching same as teaching um here you've been great with your time so far um we ask everyone that comes on three questions to finish up so the first one for you is what does the term successful coach mean to you yeah i think for me it really is somebody who is can connect with their athletes and connect with the human first and focuses on the person first and the actual performance second. They're the ones that I would have seen and probably enjoyed working the most under and had the most success under. Someone who can connect. And that doesn't mean, I don't mean that in the fluffy sense. Like we don't like everybody, I suppose, we we work with sometimes. Um but we can still work with them in a sporting sense. So it might be somebody I want to go for a point with afterwards, or the same, I'm sure the coach maybe feels that with the athletes that they work with. But you can certainly connect with individuals for a particular common purpose. So the best coaches are the ones that I see who do that, or even from a, a coaching kids' perspective, it's if you have repeat business, are the kids coming back? So it's focusing on that individual connection like I said everybody wants to feel that they feel valued they feel heard um, and, and and validated that they're actually being listened to yeah no it's a great answer and um, we'll save we'll have to get you back on again to tell us which coaches you'll go for a point with and which you won't that's, that's <laughs> an episode all in itself um, 
the best book, resource, podcast, whatever you whatever you want that you'd recommend for coaches? Yeah, I'm a big pod, I'm a podcast fiend at the moment. That's something I probably really delved into in all our all our lockdowns. I find them easy to get, get in. And I, the eighty percent mental would be one that I use a lot again because it's evidence based. Um, it's grounded in science. Um, and they've just some brilliant ones, even particularly for team sports as well. There's some great ones about building um, team culture, cohesion. And I just like it. I like the way that it's actually um, packaged. The information is very useful and very, very applied. The one book I always go back to and I kind of bring one sometimes along with me if I'm away in a training camp would be Pure Sport, Sports Psychology in Action. Be Kramer, uh, John Kramer. Maybe people have heard him as Aidan Moran and uh, Kieran Carney really practical and great one for coaches in that you don't have to read a kind of cover to cover you can kind of well I want something about motivation or focus or and it has little practical exercises in it and I find I go back and go oh yeah yeah I forgot you that's a great idea so just that's a really simple one and very user friendly and coach coach friendly and then just for kind of general one it is sports psychology but for for life would be Terry Orlick's in pursuit of excellence it's an older one but it's again one that i find i go back to um quite a lot to use for for different things yeah uh, we all have them books or i certainly do where i have book ears and notes written in them and half the time i can't remember what the note was in context to but it, it certainly prompts me to read them again um last question Kira. um your top tips for a developing coach top tips for a developing coach i think it would really be to step outside your own sport, to actually see what's going on in, in other areas. And that's something for me, from a practitioner as well, uh, from I never I never played sport at a high level. I played lots of sports at, at, at various levels. But for me, I, I didn't want to stay pigeonholed in a particular sport or stick to one sport. And I focused even on a lot of minority sports so I could really develop my skill level But that uh, in sports that were... Um, competed at international level as well so to get that that kind of pressure situation so really for me for for coaches to to actually engage in formal education um, and the coach education pathways but to not ever be there's always something to learn in other sports the way sessions are set up having conversations with people and just their philosophies the way things are organized drills simple stuff so don't be afraid to step outside of sports that are completely unrelated to your own experience. There, there's always something. So Kira, we just lost you there for a second, but um, you've been fantastic with your time. Uh, I've so many takeaways written down from the, from the episode. Um, the concept of coach striving to be elite as well. I don't think anyone's talked about that before. I think that's really interesting how the psychology can help in terms of decision-making uh, that we should be looking to enhance the environment to, to make sure every all your athletes feel valued, feel heard, they're humans first, and uh, recognizing triggers is a really nice practical one that I've written down for myself. And just the whole, the, the way you talk about defining success and that everyone's different, there's no one size fits all. So uh, it's been brilliant, Kira. I uh, can't thank you enough. And uh, thanks a million for coming on.